it is my great pleasure to welcome Tal Prince, a uh, Birmingham guy, uh, into our pulpit again. Uh, Tal uh, served in the corporate world, uh, then went off to seminary, served as uh, the director of external relations at Beeson Divinity School. Uh, he served as a pastor and now at the Waiting Father Center uh, here in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, he and his wife, Teresa, have two daughters and uh, delighted uh, that you are here today to share God's word with us. Looking forward to next week as well, where we have George Cavour, who is a chaplain to Her Majesty, the Queen of England, uh, and currently serves as the rector of St. John's Church in New Haven, Connecticut, and uh, teaches at Yale. Uh, and then later on in the week, we'll have John Zoll, uh, Paul Zoll's and Mary Zoll's oldest son. Uh, they got more normal as they had them, uh, but John is the first. Uh, and so uh, I hope that you can join us Wednesday through Friday when uh, John is with us. Tell Prince will preach after we stand and sing hymn number 488, Be Thou My Vision. Please be seated. It is such a thrill for me to be back here. It's been a minute since I've been here, but I'm so glad to be back with you. And uh, thank you, Andrew, for the invitation uh, to so many friends that I have here, Cannon Smalley and Gil Cracky. And it's been great to connect with people while I've been here this morning and just see familiar faces and say hi. Uh, so thanks for welcoming me. And uh, I'm just, I'm really honored to be here. I don't know uh, what all you really know about me, but I'll start with a confession. Uh, and that is I am not a super Christian, though I have played one in many a Sunday school class. And I think I'm probably not so alone in this chapel this morning. I think a few of us have done that, where we have just kind of taken on the role. And uh, we sometimes sit and worship on Sunday, making sure our capes are, you know, really nice and ironed and starched. And that our super Christian logos are properly polished and displayed. Uh, it may be only me, but I, I don't think so. I see that happen a lot, and I'm also struck in today's world how quickly we identify with people that we consider to be heroes of the Bible. Easy to identify with guys like Moses and David and Peter, uh, and now we have any number of Facebook quizzes and other sources on the internet to ask you, which of the seven dwarves are you, or which, one of the, which Bible character are you? Has any of you taken any of these uh, quizzes online? Uh, here is the thing. The answer that never comes back is anything like Nabal, Jacob, or Mephibosheth. Those answers never come back. I always get things like, you know, Peter, or you're like Paul. And I'm like, no, I'm just angry a lot. <laughs> That doesn't necessarily make me like Paul, you know, this is the thing. But I don't get answers that are closer to the truth. I don't get Nabal, who was, I mean, the Bible tells us his name means fool. That would be a tough name to go through life with. The Bible also tells us he was both ugly and mean. None of us signing up to identify with that guy. Didn't recognize who the king was when the king was coming to see him. Didn't know. Needed his wife to go intervene for him and save his life. We don't identify with Jacob, whose very name means liar. 
That's a tough name to go through life with. Everybody knows your greatest struggle because it is your name. And we have all these cons that we read about in scripture that he pulled off. And no one ever says Mephibosheth, a helpless cripple. We don't identify with Mephibosheth in a lot of ways, but it's not just because we can neither really pronounce or spell his name correctly. None of us want to be seen as a cripple. I don't want to be identified as a cripple. I don't want to look like that. I want you to believe that I've got some type of power. And for some of you who don't know Mephibosheth very well, uh, his story is found in 2 Samuel. We see him in 2 Samuel 9. Uh, he's the son of Jonathan, the grandson of Saul. Now, normally, it's a very good thing to be genetically related to royalty. A lot of privileges come along with that. That's a good thing until a new king arises from outside the family. Then it is a very distinctly bad thing uh, to be genetically related because any new king coming in would just, as a standard, kill off any, any relatives. Anybody that may have a legitimate claim to the throne would be killed. Now, Mephibosheth was very fortunate uh, to have a, a nurse who, who knew that deal, and, um, and she picked him up. He was only five. She picked him up and tried to run away with him to save his life. But something happened in her run, and she tripped and she fell, and Mephibosheth, as a result of that fall, was crippled. Couldn't walk. Certainly couldn't run to save his life. And for several years, uh, we see that David took his time making sure he was killing off any challengers to the throne. Took him several years to do that. And he, you know, so he defended Israel, fought for the throne of Israel. Uh, and then in God's sovereignty and timing, one day he begins to remember his covenant with Jonathan. And he asks, are there any descendants of Jonathan still alive? And one of Saul's servants, Zilba, was there, and she heard David ask that question, and she said, yes, there is. His name is Mephibosheth, and I know right where he is. And so David sends for Mephibosheth. Now, we've got the advantage of knowing how this story goes. It ends very well for Mephibosheth, but you know who did not know that at the time? Mephibosheth. Imagine being a crippled young man, knowing that the new king was killing off any, just by, just by rule, would kill off any threats to the throne. Anyone had any legitimate claim. And you get a message that this king would really like to see you. Who's signing up? Imagine, it's really not much different than being a crippled Jewish teenager in Hitler's Germany being summoned to Munich. How many of you would have advised Mephibosheth, yeah, you'll be good, go on ahead. I would have told him he was an idiot. <laughs> Whatever way is toward the palace, go the other way, man. But Mephibosheth goes. He goes, and I imagine that journey, I don't know how long it took, but it was several days, and I imagine it was pretty anxious along the way. But he gets there, 
he gets to the palace and he, here comes this crippled descendant of the, for, of the former king being carried into the presence of the new king. This young man is absolutely powerless and defenseless. There's nothing he can do. He can't work. He's got no money to offer to, to pay for his life. He's got nothing to offer this king. He, I mean, the only thing he could possibly do is offer his loyalty, but no one's going to believe that. You're saying that to save your life. Nobody would believe that promise of loyalty. So he's literally got nothing. And there he is before the king. But this king is a very different kind of king. This king is a covenant-honoring king. This is different. And he had a covenant with Mephibosheth's dad, and he was going to honor it. And so what happens is the exact opposite of what we would all expect to happen, and what anybody else there would have expected to happen. David gives Mephibosheth all of Saul's land. All of Saul's land, he gives it to Mephibosheth and tells him that I want you to always dine at my table. David gives him an inheritance that he is no longer entitled to. Gives it to him. And goes beyond that inheritance. And then invites him to come eat. Every night I want you to eat at my table. The king's table where only the best is served. And Mephibosheth was never going to be handed a check. Just gets to come in every night and have the best food and drink available. Because the king wants him to be in his presence. Knowing there's nothing he can do to pay for that. Mephibosheth has nothing to offer. Nothing. It is all a merciful and supremely gracious gift to him from the king. And that, my friends, is the gospel. This fantastic, supremely gracious gift to us who have absolutely nothing to bring to the table. We have nothing to offer. We have nothing of worth that could make this a financial transaction. This is completely different. We have nothing to offer the king in exchange for our lives. We are not great branding or marketing moves. None of us. God did not save me because he's got good taste. That's not why he saved me. It's not why he saved you. Any branding or marketing expert would have told God, stay away from this guy. This guy is a failure. This guy will disappoint you. This guy is wrong. This guy has troubles. This guy has addictions. This guy has idolatry in his life. He's, he's all of these things. Don't associate with him. It'll, it'll ruin the brand. God's just not concerned with that. And if we will start with this assessment that we've got nothing to offer, that we've got nothing to bring to the table, if we can start with that assessment, I believe there is hope for growth and I believe there is treatment of the disease called sin that we all have. I believe we can enter treatment process at that point. In fact, um, there is hope that this disease that we have can actually go into remission. Um, if we will follow God's treatment plan, that can actually happen. It requires courage and it requires humility. And it calls for us to acknowledge 
and fight the shame that so many of us feel that keeps us being helpless. And we can admit that we, in fact, don't just feel helpless. We are helpless and we are powerless. I think there's a reason Jesus says in his word that apart from me, you can do nothing. I take him at his word on that. I can't do anything. And this flies in the face of a society and a culture that screams for all of us to hide our weaknesses. This is, this is the antithesis of our cultural message, is it not? To say, no, just embrace your weakness. Say you are weak, say you are helpless, say you are powerless. And, and bring all your challenges and flaws out. This is not what we are taught to do in our society these days. It's not the way it works. And many of us carry this overwhelming amount of shame from all of the hiding and trying to appear as if we're Mephibosheth and, oh, I can walk. I just don't feel like it right now. I'm going to stay seated. We have to come up with excuse after excuse after excuse after excuse to people as to why we're not getting up to walk when we know the fact is can't and then that shame can turn toxic and when we feel bad about who we are as people we start to feel hopeless and our identity gets altered in that moment and we're motivated not to change but to just give up I've been there and that is crippling I find this to be very interesting, the impact and just kind of the crippling effects of shame in our lives. And you know why I find it so fascinating today is, do you know what Mephibosheth means? His very name means shame destroyer. I need that. I need a shame destroyer in my life. Shame is so crippling. I don't think I'm the only one in here that needs that. But I get a shame destroyer in my life when I understand I am just as crippled as Mephibosheth. I can't do it on my own. I'm no better or worse than anybody else. And my sin is no more acceptable to God than anybody else's sin. Nor is it worse than anybody else's sin. I've never heard of a group of, I've never been around a group of paralytics who have argued about which one of them is less paralyzed than the others. It's not what we do. They all accept the fact, yep, legs do not work. They don't try and rank each other. And man, we do that in the church so often. We try and say, well, I, you know, I'm not as bad as that guy. But if you're powerless, you're powerless. They're not degrees. If you're powerless, you just are. I have the disease of sin, and my mind and heart have been horrifically impacted by it, as have yours. And I have a lot of symptoms of the disease. I hide some of them pretty well. Um, I imagine some of you hide your symptoms pretty well. Um, I'm good at it. Um, But I need a covenant-honoring king to show me grace and mercy in spite of that because I've got nothing else to offer. And the great news is that God, in Jesus Christ, is that king. 
And he offers that to you and to me. And he invites me to his table every day. Every day he invites me to his table and offers me the best of the best, even though I cannot pay for it. And I've got nothing that I can do to repay him for this incredible gift. And he doesn't stop there. Just allowing me to be at the table would be phenomenal, would be fantastic. But he doesn't stop there. No, he, 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 he does this extra thing. He, he, he sets fine linens over the table. And so now there are these long white cloths of linen over the table. And you know what they do? They hide my deformed legs. And so I look like I'm a legitimate family member. I don't look like the crippled pity case there that, well, we're just letting this guy be here. Because, I mean, look at him. And so we get to all sit at this table with this tablecloth hiding our infirmities and hiding that. And we get to sit there and nobody knows how defective we are. But you know what can happen with a lot of us is the disease of sin can come back to our brain just this fast. And we start to look around and we start to wonder... Am I the only cripple, though, at the table? I can't see their legs. What if they're all fine but me? Anybody ever do that? We just kind of wonder, why is everybody else's life in here so perfect and right? And mine is so jacked up. Jeez, I hope they don't find out. And so we get to sit at this table, but we start to ask ourselves, if we're the only ones crippled there, maybe everyone else is healthy. Maybe they deserve to be here. Maybe they could have paved their way. And it happens again. Shame returns, and we feel the need to hide again, even though we're in the presence of the king at the table, and we feel the need to hide. I see it Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. I watch it happen. And a meal at the king's banquet table becomes a game of liar's poker where we all feel the need to try and convince everybody everything is great. Some of us come in and look around the banquet hall and everyone looks as perfect as Jesus promises to make us. And we feel inferior and we feel shame and we feel the need to go back into hiding. And so the next round of the game begins and suddenly our lives are perfect. We don't sin and it appears that God really did make a good decision in saving me. That I really had something to bring to the table. The towel was that real in-demand free agent signing that God was just really hoping he'd get. We never hear it, but it's in those moments that our disease switches from remission back to relapse. Back in it. We're sick and the symptoms have returned, whether we realize it or not. But we try to desperately hide them in front of anyone because we don't want them to see. And if we get scared enough, we'll eventually give up trying to to look as if we're perfectly healthy. And we settle for scanning the banquet hall for someone we're better than. Well, I'm not as sick as that guy. I see this happen in rehab centers, drug rehab centers, and and all types of addiction rehab centers. And I saw it when I was in a rehab center. You sit there, you look around, you try and rank yourself amongst everybody else. I'm not as bad as that guy. Maybe I don't need to be here. (laughs) It's crazy. Do you want to know a secret? Most everybody in here playing that game they have played it and they may be playing it now and it's just they are just as terrified at being found out as we all are this does not feel like the freedom and the joy that I was promised with the gospel to begin with doesn't feel like that. It feels crippling.
feeling. It feels harsh. It feels like I've got to hide. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like freedom to me. And I refuse to believe that Jesus' intention for me on the cross was for me to one day find the freedom to hide. I've done that. I've done it with a very high level of skill for many, many years. I did that. Ever since I was a young boy trying to fit in. I moved 14 times as a kid. You get really good at learning how to blend. I did that for a long time. I've seen a lot of things in my life. But one thing I've never seen is a cancer patient walk into an oncology ward and say, Nope, don't have cancer. I'm perfectly fine. I just came here to help the others. I don't need the treatment. I'm good. I'm just here to minister to everybody else. It doesn't happen if they know they really got it and they know that it is fatal and terminal. So I don't know why we do that in church so many times. It seems ridiculous, right, to think of cancer patients showing up for appointments and just saying, no, I, 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 yes, I have an appointment, but I don't need treatment. I'm just here to help others. This is what we do when we lose sight of the fact that though we have become Christians, we still have the disease of sin. We still have it. It's in our flesh. We still have it. And becoming a Christian is not just that conversion moment is not the ultimate healing for the rest of our lives. We struggle. We battle um, this disease for the rest of our lives. And becoming a Christian is just acknowledging our disease and submitting to God's treatment plan for it. God created us originally in his image, but in the fall, that image was horribly disfigured. Much like Mephibosheth was disfigured in his fall. He had a fall and he was crippled as a result. You know what? So are all of us. And the image of God in us was distorted and becoming a Christian and going through the process of sanctification is God restoring his image in us and bringing that back into fruition to what we were supposed to look like, the way we were originally created. And that's not going to happen until Jesus returns or he calls us home. And so we have this battle. This is why it bugs me a bit when people say these days, well, you know, the church is just a hospital for sinners. And I used to believe that. I used to say that a lot. And I was in a conversation with uh, a man you may know, the great Gil Cracky. And he said... And I can't remember who uh, had said it to him. It said, you know, the church is not a hospital for sinners. It is to be a hospice. It's where we are to come to die to our flesh. This is a different concept altogether. That we come here to die to our flesh. That's what the church is here to help us do. Is it, and this is what Jesus says over and over. We must kill off our flesh. Much like chemotherapy kills off parts of ourselves. It kills off a lot of us. If, you, if we want to be well and keep our disease in remission, we have to not lose sight of the fact that we are still works in progress. And it is in this moment of brave surrender that we can identify with a guy like Mephibosheth. We can identify with a guy like Nabal. We can identify... With, with, with Jacob and countless other of ridiculous sinners ensconced in the pages of Scripture. We can say, I'm like that guy. 
I'm like her. I'm like him. We can say that. These are the people who are crippled, mean, ugly, lying fools. Not the people we typically want to be seen as, but it's who we are. But when we can acknowledge that, then God becomes our shame destroyer. We can sit and comfort in that. Doesn't that sound better than this painful, ongoing game of hiding and, and, and trying to simulate perfection? It's so much more freeing. It's a much better place to live. It gets down to the type of church that I want desperately to be a part of. Um, I, my favorite is, is Martin Luther. I just, I absolutely adored Martin Luther. And, and he had a friend who had a real issue, a, a, just a perpetual sin issue. And he continued to write Martin Luther about it. And Martin Luther finally wrote him back. And he said this, this is my favorite quote. In fact, it is on the wall in my office and all my clients see it. Um, it is my favorite thing. It, he, he wrote to his friend, my faithful request and admonition is that you would join our group and associate with us who are real, great, hard-boiled sinners. That's a group of people I want to fit in with because I do. I fit there. That's a hospice for saints who are crucifying their flesh. That's a group of people who get Galatians 2, 19 and 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And as my friend Steve Brown says, crucified people are very, very dangerous. Because they don't have anything to prove and they never have to pretend. They don't have to look good. They don't have to be famous. They don't have to impress anybody and they don't have to win races. And because that is true, I have an answer when people ask me, which Bible character are you most like? I'm like Mephibosheth. I'm a cripple in desperate need of having my shame destroyed. Great news. That I have a king who loves me, honors his covenant, even when I don't, and invites me to his table. Amen.